0: Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. I'm delighted to say I am here with Mr. Andrew Thorpe King. He is the author of this book, Failure Rules, The Five Rules of Failure for Entrepreneurs, Creatives and Authentics. Uh, He's an an entrepreneur and a man with a, well, a quite incredible story. Uh, I was riveted in parts of this book, you know, just with your own story, let alone uh, (laughs) the stories of others that you include. So, Andrew, a very warm welcome to the show. Thanks, Richard. Glad to be here, man. Uh, happy to, uh, to talk to you. Thanks for having me on. Great. Uh, and so for those of you who've not uh, come across your work or heard of you before, could you give our audience a little bit of your backstory? I mean, I, I know it's a long one, but it's a, a summarized one on how you came to, to write the book Failure Rules
1: yeah so um i have a background in a variety of spaces so primarily has been a, a dual career in the music industry and in banking and finance right so two very disparate kind of spaces but pretty much maintained kind of this uh, you know toggling between the two over, over the decades also done a number of, uh, of other things i mean i've competed in bodybuilding shows i wrote a spy novel owned a gym for a period of time but primarily music and um and banking and finance. And and now I wrote my first nonfiction book here, Failure Rules. And this really kind of encapsulates and kind of puts a a ribbon on all the different off-road entrepreneurial adventuring I've done over the years, and really kind of distills what I believe are kind of some of the core lessons I've learned. And most of them revolve around how to um, anticipate, uh, metabolize, and optimize failure when they inevitably strike particularly when you're going down difficult paths, particularly when you're going down unorthodox paths, paths that might not have some sort of clear blueprint, uh, you know, that you can just go to college for and kind of have this track normality to go chase after, right? So, um, you know, starting a record label, you you don't go to school to learn how to do that, right? I mean, yeah, there's business, but you got to find your kind of third doors, your back doors, your ways around, you have creative ways of kind of finding mentors in your life to do things like that. Same with other, you know, more, uh, creative pursuits like writing a spy novel, or you know whatever, or even the traditional business ventures I've done, like owning a gym, or owning a lead generation company, or doing online lending, and all the different manifestations of financial services and banking that I've been involved with. So, you know, this is really a book that kind of um, uh, goes through all that and tries to give some sort of premeditative guidance for people uh, to ha- on how to view and anticipate what will inevitably be, you know, um, either failures or hard times or difficulties. That will punctuate, you know, uh, a difficult path or a path more aligned with someone's true, authentic calling journey.
0: Right. Yeah. No, I love it. Uh, and and it's just packed packed with wisdom from, as I said, from your own own experience. And and you bring in all of these, yes. these characters uh, throughout the book, <laughs> which I really appreciate. <laughs> Um, but maybe, maybe to start us off, then you talked. Uh, I love that phrase, off off road entrepreneurship. <laughs> like, yeah. where did where did this start for you? What was your first uh, off road uh, foray? Yeah, so like, I mean, I, I graduated
1: college with uh, an English degree, but I, but I took it by dropping my 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 student teaching right or my teaching degree right. So I, I thought I was going to be an English teacher, kind of by default, just because I liked reading and writing, but i realized as i started student teaching that i really didn't want to be a teacher i didn't want to wake up early i didn't want to teach the same material over and over again every year i wouldn't be learning from that and uh, kids are all right but i really don't want to be around them all day so you know i, I kind of realized that early on i'm like oh shit! now what the hell am i actually going to do with this degree right i mean i've been sitting here you know uh, last year college uh, studying high level uh you know courses on uh, lesbian poetry and alfred hitchcock seminars right And so I'm thinking, what do I do now? But at the same time, it was like, all right, now this track that I was on, this kind of like predictable track is wide open. And so it actually wasn't even really scary to me. It was just like, wow, the world is wide open. You know, the adventure begins here. And it was really then that I started like kind of feeling this intuitive sense of like trying to step by step interpret next steps for what might be my authentic calling journey, right? Even not knowing the end game. But knowing that at each kind of decision point, there there was this kind of clear voice I could hear inside, right? Some might call that just your gut. Some might call that your heart, your conscious. Some might call that, you know, the voice of God, whatever it is. I really began to listen to that in in times of um, reflection. And I made it, you know, a, a point to have a lots of solitude in my life so I could hear that get clear direction on my life and where I was going next. And at that time in my life, um, you know, I, I, I really was into hardcore punk music. That was my thing that drove me. That was kind of the soundtrack of my life still is at, you know, at, at age 49, I wanted to do something in music. I wanted to do something that had meaning. I still needed to make money. Um, and so the first thing I did when I got, out of, you know, dropped out of school is I just kept working at the same, you know, steel plant I worked at, uh, while I was in school. So I was a union steel worker for about a year. And that was a wild adventure, you know, I mean, just, uh, working the lines every day, working around, uh, you know, the, the oft uh, overlooked working poor learning Spanglish and just getting a sense of that factory life and that grit life. And that was great. I had all kinds of like writing that came out of that period. And I was doing spoken word kind of uh, events based on some of my experiences there, but I needed a bigger challenge. So I also trained for a bodybuilding show at that time. So I had these kind of dual things happening and that was in a, a hardcore punk band uh, towards the tail end of that, uh, and started, um, you know, to drifting more into that space. And then I decided to start writing for uh, music magazines, quickly realized that that wasn't going to make me any money. So I thought, how can I still be involved with the music industry and still be connected to this passion? And so I decided to start a, a record label and shadowed somebody I know who did one. And that's really when both the adventure, the meaning and the tumult began, right? Because I talk about a calling journey. And I think one of the two of the trademark kind of attributes of a of a real authentic calling journey often are mystery and tumult you know that is coupled with the meaning and the joy and the passion there is that mystery and the tumult and that's where the tumult began so i was freshly married and uh at at that time then i was working as a bill collector for ford credit and hated it got laid off got a pink slip right when i got back from my honeymoon and i was kind of like "Fuck it this is this is my opportunity in this failure space in this empty space I'm gonna find a way to move into this next step of my calling journey, even if unsafe, right? Uh yeah. which, you know, rule number two is nothing is safe. So I maxed out my credit card, started a record company while I was delivering pizzas and collecting unemployment, uh, freshly married. Uh, and lots of trouble happened throughout that time. But at the same time, here I am 20 plus years later, own the rights to over 100 recordings and have two record labels. And there's been a very kind of colorful up and down career that's happened in that, but moreover. There's been this true, real meaning to me. I've been able to work with bands that I've been inspired by since I was 15, still listen to on a daily basis. There's still the, the songs I listen to when I'm at the gym or when I'm having
0: a difficult time or what have you. I mean, there's still kind of the, the undergirding strength that believes me. Right, right. And and as you tell that story, I'm struck by, because so how old are you when you, you, you must be still, you're still in your early twenties, are you? And you're getting married and you're starting this record label?
1: Yeah, twenty seven, twenty six, twenty seven 27, 26,
0: 27, around that 26, age. 26, yeah. 27, right, mid-20s. And, you know, I'm just comparing comparing myself at that age. You know, I'm just thinking, you know, how can I make money? And still a pretty part of me is like, how do I fulfill on the yeah. expectations of my parents? But it seems to me like you had a sort of level of m- maturity there, right? Like you were asking these bigger questions. Is I was asking the bigger questions. And uh, depending on how you look at
1: it, I view it as a blessing, but some people was just a head scratcher. Like I, I never, I never had... Really, any um, you know unhealthy attachment to expectations of others i just right. never really factored into my mind that much. It was like I, I, I had, I, I would just, I had, I knew what, what my path was going to be. It Did not matter how it was going to track with others. I mean, you might be conscious of it, but you know, I just, you know, I went to the beat of my own drum and I heard a different, a different song. You know, as Lemmy from Motorhead would say
0: yeah i think that that's you know that's a great advice and so did you did you like consciously have to to let go of that or was it just you had parents who never laid like heavy expectations on you what what, why do you think you were that they didn't lay heavy expectations on me
1: any expectations they had on me were more um uh, moral and spiritual um they didn't have societal you know you know metrics of success or image or status none of that stuff was ever really important my parents So I guess I was freed up from those type of normal expectations, which I think was pretty healthy in many ways. And then in other ways, maybe not so healthy. I mean, there could have been maybe a little more emphasis on um, the structure and financial sophistication and things like that. But I learned that on
0: my own over time. and, And I think that was just as meaningful. Right, right. Um, so in the, the, the chapter of the book, is fa- failure purifies. So you have this purifying event of the pink slip, right? You're fired from, f- fried from your, from your job. As you, when you get back from honeymoon and, and this kind of frees you up. And, and so what's the, what's like the first band you start, you know, how do you start to get yeah, into yeah. that?
1: Yeah. So like I said, I was shadowing this guy who had his own record label he was the only guy I knew still talked to him here, here and now today, you know, here every once in a while today, he no longer does this anymore. But, you know, he wasn't super successful, but he's who I knew, right? So I go there, you know, for free, just shadow him and learn how the contracts work, learn the branding, learn how the distribution uh, process worked, all of that. He allowed me to piggyback onto his distribution deal he had at the time. And he's like, look, there's this band in uh, New York, Breakdown, who's looking for a label. And they were one of my favorite bands. and listened to them since I was like, you know, in my teenage years, they were on this killer um, uh, compilation that came out of Revelation, Revelation Records called uh, New York Hardcore, The Way It Is. And so I was like, absolutely. So I drove to New York, met with them, didn't really know what I was doing, but worked out kind of like the you know the bones of a proposal, and um, just uh, dove right in, man, and just <laughs> went after it and just learned the process. And I, I remember getting like the factory, you know, the the shipment from the uh, the plant and the the CDs back then when CDs mattered, which obviously they don't matter anymore. But the shrink wrap on the CDs and the artwork, like the whole process and seeing my logo finally on it, like was such a big deal like that was thorpe records number one right now now there's like over 80 releases on that record label but like that first one it was just like the idea of having something being in your head being a wild plan and then seeing it to you know through the project management steps into fruition was just such a pleasure then to see that in the marketplace then of course immediately my entrepreneurial euphoria was busted by the fact that you know Yeah, I started to have some recurring revenue from this, but it was low and my debt was high and I still needed an income and I'm still unemployed, right? So that's great. I started to slightly get this off the ground, but I still needed a job. I still needed what I call in the book, a thing one enabler pursuit to help me move towards my thing two aspirational or Star pursuit, right? So then I um, was in the gym one night and ended up seeing this guy with a Snapcase t-shirt. Snapcase is a hardcore band from Buffalo, New York. Wasn't really into the band, but I was like, oh, that's rare to see a guy in the gym with, you know, from this culture, right? We ended up talking. Turns out he used to be an attorney and uh, he moved from Colorado to the Philly area to become the VP of Relapse Records, which is an extreme grindcore metal label. And, uh, you know, I got to talking to him and within a few weeks, I landed a job running the wholesale department there. So All of a sudden, like that was a pivotal moment. I call it my Carl moment. His name was Carl, right? It's like when you meet that person, which, you know, might be, you know, for, you know, just serendipitous or, or what have you, uh, providential. And that changes the whole trajectory of your life. Cause then all of a sudden now I have this paid education in the music industry by day. while I'm running my record labels at night that I already started before I got the job without even, you know, going out and doing a bunch of resumes. I just happened to meet this guy. It was like, it was meant to happen. Right. And so there, there's that kind of spiritual nature, that kind of like following that intuition and trusting your internal spirit voices. You move along and try to interpret your calling journey at each step.
0: Yeah, it's like you, you get on that calling journey, you take the first step, and somehow the universe, I mean it doesn't mm-hmm. happen immediately, but re- rewards yes. you for taking that yes. initiative, right? Yes.
1: Yeah, it, it conspires along your side,
0: right? It starts putting those breadcrumbs around you. Exactly. Yeah exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. Um and, and you talk about the the thing one, thing two, um, and and that's interesting because I guess some people might have the view that you wanna, you know, you want to dive right in, burn your bitches, go for it. Leave yourself with no Plan B, and and I think you've got a slightly different message here, right? You you're saying no, have 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 something, you know, that have, the money coming in.
1: It's funny because I actually do respect that approach. At the same time, I think it's hardcore as hell. Like like I, I do a video on my YouTube channel, and I referenced Travis Barker from Blink One Eighty Two, and how he like uh, his father was telling him, like you know you probably shouldn't get so many tattoos. It's going to limit your options as as you go out into the workforce. This and that. And so he deliberately decided to get as many tattoos as possible at that time to limit his options intentionally so he had no choice but to become a professional drummer. Now, that worked out for him. That doesn't always work out for most people. So, like, as much as I respect that, I'm like, that's badass. I don't really recommend it. (laughs) You (laughs) know what I mean? So so for me, I have this concept of this thing one, thing two dependency. Thing one, thing two has nothing to do with the cat in the hat. It's more like this disheveled Tony Soprano waking up, Lighting his first cigar of the day in his, in his white bathrobe and saying, you know, you got your thing one enabler pursuit over here and your thing two north star aspiration dream pursuit over there. Right. More of that kind of image that came to my head when I came up with it. But it's really this idea that, you know, you can't always go straight at your dream because failure rule number two is nothing is safe and your dreams aren't fucking safe either. So you can't always go straight at your dream. Right. You got to find some sort of creative way. And even though nothing is safe, try to make it as safe as possible. Right. So build some scaffolding, have some undergirding, have a plan. Even though failure will strike, you want to mitigate it. The most self-evident failure rule is try to avoid failure as much as possible. So, you know, have have some sort of plan. And this thing one is really whatever it is that is the structure that enables you to more safely and more probably get to this aspiration, right? So I go through some very creative examples of the book. The obvious one is bang down a nine to five job and side hustle very slowly your dream on the side but there's other ones that can expedite reaching your dream, right? So I, I talk about these two brothers from Lebanon who come over to the States, uh, Shia Muslims, and uh, they needed some startup caskets for them. And in, 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 the, in America, like their pursuit of happiness was to, to own businesses. They wanted to own some brick and mortar businesses and be their own bosses, right? They had no cash. So they sacrificed and they worked for Disney on ice traveling, working the merch truck, selling swag to like mothers of, of little girls who love princesses. Right. And uh, Disney on ice covered their lodging, covered their food. So they had no expenses. They had no home. They're married to the road, probably pretty lonely. Not exactly a fun job, but the dip of the two years. They banked all their earnings, had the seed money, ended up, you know, kind of seeding this somewhat retail empire in the city they lived where they own cigar lounges, they own gas stations, they own gyms, they own nightclubs. And that was their, th- th- their thing One enabler was that Disney on ice, which gives a more rich narrative story to the, the eventual uh, achievement of their thing to dream right so that's kind of the concept right it's not always just like quit your job and just go straight after it right cuz it doesn't always work out so so well you know you, you kind of have to have a portfolio of pursuits and have different gradations and percentages of of um meaning and money that kind of come from from each thread of that that portfolio
0: yeah yeah it reminds me of a story i'm trying to remember i can't remember the book i read it in but of a vietnamese couple who came to america and worked in uh a, i think it was in a laundrette or dry cleaners mm, yeah and then they slept in the back of the dry cleaners saved all of their wages they, and, yeah. and i think over several years until they had enough money to like to own their first laundrette uh mm. they so they'd lived in the back of that, laundrette that they yeah. and then a few more years after that they could buy their first apartment <laughs> But, yeah. Right, and think about
1: that. Like that mentality was not foreign to like older generations, but I think to to maybe my generation or early, you know especially newer generations, the idea of sacrificing stuff like that like not really in their mind. They 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 kind of want it all laid out, all ready to go, all properly developed from 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 the first uh, first step. And you know, I just don't think that that's really the the mentality that you can have if you're going to go after something. You know, difficult or creative or hard or you know, um, you know, full
0: of meaning. Yeah. Okay, so you've got this record company going. You've 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 signed your your first deal. You you then get this job this 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 job in house at another record label. You've got your your own label on the side. What 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 comes next? Like, what's the next big big development?
1: Yeah. So I was probably I worked in the music industry there in various capacities for five, six, seven years maybe. Right. So I um, ended up um leaving relapse records moving to the midwest to toledo ohio you know about a half hour from detroit and uh ended up working for a distribution company called lumberjack was kind of like their top salesman there met a lot of great creative folks there i mean everybody there was doing something they were either in a band and they had a record label so there's you know a lot of people from this scene were kind of connected there i mean that's where the all-american rejects were discovered who were a huge band. i was i remember when uh, the owner of lumberjack's um uh, stepsister discovered their demo and brought it to him. He signed them and sold them off to Warner, you know, like uh basis for Against Me work there. All these kind of it was a really cool kind of scene. Uh and I just kept building my record labels at night. And there was obviously still that vertical integration with my day job and what I was doing at night. Didn't take a cent from the record label for four years. And then I started to find some sex success with some bigger bands, um, Blood for Blood, Mad Ball, Slapshot, some classic hardcore bands and uh at that time then i decided to go on my own for a couple of years and got an office downtown and, um that's actually when the trouble started right so that's when i i over invested in some records i got overextended with, with 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 the debt that helped fund the record label and then all of a sudden the digitization of music that transition happened and there was tower records closed and that was 25 percent of my sales and there was returns coming in and you know i was up Shits Creek, and uh, it was at that time that you know I write about the book where, you know, at a certain point I, I had conceded to declare personal bankruptcy while kind of maintaining the record labels. But at the time the record labels weren't worth anything, like there was nothing I could sell off. I tried to sell off the contracts, the stock. There, there was really no buyers. But what I didn't know is that long tail, long term. Um, because people had a sense of this, but couldn't predict it was that, you know, years later, the IP rights had become very, very valuable for streaming and all that. So that was all retained. And I was able then a few years later to begin releasing records again and keep it going. But this time I did it, you know, as a part-time thing and kept doing that for, you know, over decades uh, while I had already started this thread of financial services and banking. So I was doing financial planning in the Midwest. Um, That had its own Trials and tribulations. It was still kill or be killed. There was no salary. 2008 financial crisis hit. A lot of clients were closing out accounts. And then I moved back to the Philly area, kind of um, with not a whole lot to come here for. Uh, but then once I got here, I ended up meeting uh, a person who helped get me into the online lending space. And new adventures began there. Still the financial services stuff. And then still had my record labels turning in the background. But then the genesis of this book really was I was. Walking on the beach um, in Jersey, Brigantine, New Jersey, uh, 2013, and uh, I had just gone through a business divorce with a partner in the online lending business that was very tumultuous and uh, caused me to have to really reorganize my financial life. My core income was kind of gone. I had some other streams, but had to kind of reorganize it. Uh, And uh, I also was pretty uh, well aware that I was on the path to a marital divorce. And so I'm walking on the beach and this is where I'm thinking about all the different things I'd done, from running a gym, record labels, all this stuff, and, you know, like thinking about what, what, what kept me going? Like, why am I still like, not like crying on the floor? Like yeah. I was, and it was like, I thought of the Winston Churchill quote success is going from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm. Yeah, It was like that enthusiasm. But that was like the thing that was like the endorphin of the spirit that kept me going through failures and hard times. And, Detours and setbacks and all that shit, and um, that's when I just became convicted to write a book on the value of failure. And so I wrote some loose notes that day, um, and then over the course of seven years, various drafts and iterations. First draft, like Hemingway say, you know, Hemingway says all oh, first drafts were shit. First one was shit, uh, but as I went on, it became more and more revealed stuff. It's like the book took on a life of its own. I had my own stories. Each story kind of had its own lesson. Um, I then started to observe that these lessons kind of bunched up and rolled up into overarching kind of concepts or rules that became the five rules of failure. And then I layered in for validation a whole host of very diverse virtual mentors of mine uh, that connected with each lesson. So, you know, you see these case studies ranging from legendary boxer Jack Johnson to author Stephanie Land to, to, uh, you know, uh, Tony Tarasino, who was the the, uh, mayor of Key West, Florida, to podcaster James Altucher, to Lemmy Kilmister from Motorhead, to Gene Simmons from Kiss, to spy novels Vince Flynn, to all these different people. So very diverse cast of characters, as you say, and I think that really gave kind of a richness and a familiarity, and kind of like a realism to my own stories that made them them larger than me, right? Because I'm only so interesting. But to connect these lessons to other people, I think made the book a lot more interesting, for folks.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And 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 where I've got really hooked in what you've just described, and. And it's great that you pointed it out because that, that that is so true. I mean, the 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 extent of the adverse experiences you have is just extraordinary. Right? You're you're on food stamps. You go through, mm-hmm. a, I think, at least two divorces. Right? You know, yes, you yes. Know, uh, several business failures. You know, fallouts with business partners, as you say. What what do you attribute? Because and and as I, as I describe all of that, I I know of at least you know a, a, you know a close friend of mine who who failed at a business, spiraled yeah. into depression. You know, it took. You know, more than a year to recover and come back to some sort of functioning, you know, state again. Um, you see it in the newspapers all the day, right? You know, mm-hmm. guy loses his business, shoots himself with oh. his wife and his kids. You know, you oh. You know that the, the people can have very yeah. serious, you know, um, adverse reactions to business failures, right? But but as you say, failure is part of an entrepreneurial life, an authentic life, and aligned. You know, if you're lining to a purpose and some level, you, yes. that's going to be entrepreneurial, and you're going to face failure. So, so what is it about you, your practices, your mind, you know, what, what is it that has you stay, you know, relatively stable during these adverse events?
1: So, you know, obviously I'm still a human being. I still have emotions. I still have sorrow. I still have pain that occurs in these moments. Right. I mean, I detailed the book, how the day I conceded to declare bankruptcy, man, I just, I was drunk on the, on my office floor by noon and spent the rest of the day in the strip club, just like, you know trying to escape life, right? So I have those moments, but at the same time, at the end of the day, right, I really, you know, kind of rely on principles and concepts of non-attachment, right? You know, whether you draw that from a Buddhist tradition, uh, you know, from, from the the words of Apostle Paul in Christianity, from a non-faith expression like Stoicism, for me, like, you know, I, I don't have a soul. I am a soul. I have a body, right? Uh, and that's kind of a phrase that my friend Raganath Kapo uh, Hare Krishna devotee, singer for the, the hardcore band Shelter says a lot to me, like that is what it says it all for me, like the external stuff, the physical stuff, it's going to shift and crumble, all that's going to move around. But what matters is, is 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 my my spirit soul, which is, you know, internally anchored and eternally connected, right? So it's like, I have this spiritual core where I believe I'm more than this flesh, I believe that I'm more than just an interaction with uh, the uh, my accomplishments an interaction with the external material things in this world i love to maximize and enjoy all those things don't get me wrong you know what i mean like i'm not against material things like i like driving a cadillac i like smoking cigars in my hot tub like i love all that shit but if it gets taken away it is not who i am so if my business gets taken away or pursuit fails i don't over identify with it although i do identify with it softly but it's not my primary identity my primary identity is transcendent it's eternal. And that is my anchoring. That is my 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 kind of disposition in the world. So I, I really hold loose the, those those attachments of the world. So that really has been, I think, the anchoring uh, sensibility that that keeps me going keeps me grounded. Uh, you know,
0: from right. And did you have to develop that, or were you just came in? You, you've you've sort of always had that sort of loose attachment, or? Develop?
1: I developed it, but it was you know it certainly is from a relationship with God that uh, was tested and 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 you know uh, tried by fire over time through these type of failures, right? That became the emerging kind of
0: winning um, you know mindset for me, for sure. Mm. And 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 do you have practices that keep that keep you in that connection?
1: Yeah, I think it's really just making sure to protect. Uh, you know, times of abundant solitude and ref- reflection. I mean, yeah. however that takes place. I mean, I don't care if you're meditating or if you're just have you know, m- you know, time of reflection where you're working out or taking a walk. Like, so I, I, I like to hike a lot, or not really hike, a trail walk. You know, uh, I like to ride my bike. I like to lift weights. I like to hang out in my hot tub. Just like not being that social when I am social, I'm very outgoing, very gregarious. And I enjoy the hell out of my friends and i like to party, but I like a lot of time alone, man. It just gives me that clarity, helps me hear that eternal spirit voice, helps me remember how to be oriented in the world uh, and, and to be loosely attached to, to to most of the things in my life while still enjoying them, while still chasing after them, while still being
0: ambitious. Like those two things can happen at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and what you what you're saying, they're listening to your spirit voice. Yeah, that's uh your your intuition. That's so many um, people muzzle that. So many that, people just yeah. bury that
1: with noise and
0: social media and feeling
1: like they can never be alone. They can't even drive a car without having music on, like they can never, they, they constantly need inputs externally almost to crowd out that voice, right? Because they're afraid of what it's gonna tell you. Cause sometimes it tells you things you don't want to hear. That's you know what the I mean? important
0: thing, isn't it? It tells you things you don't want to hear. And yeah, but you gotta hear that shit, man. <laughs> you gotta hear it. And there's an there's an interesting moment in the book where you you say you come up with this idea for the book, you know, you, you spent this time on the beach and you go back to your wife. Um, and the reaction isn't like unbridled enthusiasm, right?
1: No, it's certainly not. Because I have all these ideas, right? And yeah, getting a job and Replacing that core income in a traditional W-2 way with something that I knew I had to do. Double, but sorry,
0: WT way. What's that? What does that mean? W
1: two, you know, like that's the tax form in the
0: US for like a okay. big
1: employee, right? So I, I knew I had to do that, but she just all she gave a shit about was safety, right? I mean, that's a reality, right? She didn't care about whether I liked what I did. It's like just bring home the paycheck. I mean, the reality is like, I'm not trying to be overly, you know, critical or mean, but the reality is I think in that marriage, looking back my role was essentially to be a sperm donor and a paycheck, you know, that was it. Mm. So like how I felt about my calling or chasing after potentially risky or difficult things, you know, that didn't really track well with someone who was just looking for, for safety. Right. And, and fine. Most people, many people are like that, but this book is for people that are not <laughs> like <laughs> this book is for people that, that view nothing as safe anyway. Uh, you know, as like Stephen Pressfield, the, the writer uh, talks about, you know, many people who kind of have that, like safe life. He he believes that, um, you know, they, they might have all the externals kind of in line, but if they're ignoring some sort of burning thing that they're supposed to do and they don't do it because it's not safe or because they're afraid of what people think, that even if everything looks good and, and, and their house is in order, so to speak, They're often suffering from like what Thoreau talks about, which is that 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 uh, living a life of quiet desperation and they're Mm going to manifest some sort of dysfunction, some sort of sickness, whether it's mental, emotional, physical, relational, something by not chasing after that. So, um, you know, the reality is even what looks safe isn't really safe from that perspective, because you're not really going to be reaching a a spiritual, emotional uh, wholeness, an integrity with with the core of your being. Uh, while you might have everything on paper lined up and again this is not to say that it's not good to be prosperous to, to 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 have wealth to have your house in order to have good relationships all that stuff obviously is is amazing and ideal but if it comes at the sacrifice of you muzzling your internal spirit voice not chasing after the things that you're uniquely created to chase after uh, you're gonna have a problem
0: yeah you know? you're setting up chronic problems right yeah and uh yeah, you said, and almost I almost feel envy for 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 that individual who who can take a, a corporate job, can can run it through for their career, and never feel a yearning for anything else. I mean, right. <laughs> the, the, and and Look,
1: I have a corporate well, job now. I've been ten years in the banking space and fintech, financial technology, working with really innovative companies, kind of the PayPal's, Venmo's, Chimes of the world. But if I didn't balance that against other creative pursuits and entrepreneurial pursuits, you know, running my record labels or writing books or doing other things, man, I'd probably die inside. But I view it as an enabler pursuit. Then it has value. and has meaning. But only as it's related to, as it powers and connects to these other things in and of itself, man, I'd I'd be withering. I'd be manifesting those same sicknesses that Pressfield talked about.
0: Right, right. Something you say in the book, which I like, is um, a, "a soul on fire is a soul alive." Yeah, <laughs> right. And yeah, I, 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 I like that. Yeah, tell us a bit more about what you, what you mean when you say that.
1: But I just, you know, all the all the people that I write about this book are my own life. The idea of chasing after things that are unsafe, uh, you know, and, and trying to make a way that is is new, you know, this off road kind of mentality, whether it's you know talking about henry rollins a singer of black flag and quit his job at the ice cream store to you know embrace punk rock poverty and get the band and go toward black flag and live out that wild career whether it's you know jack kerouac who i write about in in that uh, in that particular chapter you know or these people that did things that they almost induced failure sometimes knowing that they needed to go through that crucible to get to where they needed to go right so it's like i, I even talk about the definition of success in the book where to me, success isn't necessarily pegged to, to what we view as success from an optic standpoint, you know, the, the material or the, or, or the accomplishment. It really can paradoxically sometimes be your biggest failure mo- might, moment might actually be the biggest moment of success in hindsight, because it's the thing that made you who you needed to become uh, to go do the thing that you're supposed to do that is uniquely you, right? The idea of it, it's better to be only than to be the best, Right. You know, you're trying to live out your most authentic self. Um, and so, um, you know, I just, that phrase just came to me like that, that just kind of like connects to all these stories to my store. Like, all right, this is about being alive. It's about being a soul on fire, right? You're yeah. not docile, you know, you're not timid, you know, you're, you're not afraid to embrace chaos and make it your own and tame it for your own, you know, your own purposes, You know, you're not afraid to go slay the dragons. You're not afraid to go look for the dragons. You're not even just waiting for them to come out of their caves and come at you. Like, you know, you're you're maximizing your your time on this earth, you know, you've got a limited amount of heartbeats. Don't fucking waste them. Go after it. You know what I mean? And like to me, that phrase just came to me. And then I because I loved it and it was in that chapter, that's the name of my my clothing company I started to connect to the book is Soul on Fire Supply Company. Uh, Okay. On my website, there's a ton of killer designs for Solon Fire Supply Company. I got in my own cigar branded uh, line, Solon Fire Smokeware. I'm actually going to the PCA Trade Show, Premium Cigar Association Trade Association Trade Show in July. Gonna have a booth there, selling Solon Fire merch in the book. But yeah, that phrase is very, um, you know, it's it's a core phrase in the book.
0: Yeah, and I just contrast it to that idea. Yeah, you, you could be like in a mode of, yeah, I, I'm I'm kind of following what my soul is telling me and I think I'm yeah, on the yeah. path, right? Versus my soul's on fire and I know it, right? It's right, there's a distinction right. there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean it's 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 the
1: cure to malaise, right? Like you see people who are in this groundhog's day life who might get stuck in this kind of corporate monotony, you know, and afraid to or have no energy or afraid to or encouraged to do anything that's a little more. Audacious on the side, or what have you, and man, I don't envy them. And and uh, they're the opposite of souls on fire. They're souls fucking asleep, and I have no interest in that.
0: <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, love it, love it. Um, you write about money in the book. Um, yeah, and you talk about loving meaning, not money. Could you, mm. yeah, talk a bit more about that?
1: Yeah. So again, like, I think money's great. Uh, I really enjoy having money. I've been broke AF, and uh, then I've also had abundance. Then I was broke AF again, and then I had abundance again. Right now, I'm, I'm, I'm in the abundance um, you know, kind of bucket, and I love it. I love it. love it. I love being able to spend uh, just uh, extravagantly on the things I love and then cut mercilessly on the things I don't love, as Ramit Sethi would say. Uh, but at the same time, I don't love money. I chase after it. I use it. It's a tool. It's an agnostic tool. I love meaning, right? So if money is going to help get me meaning, then that's great. So it's been this struggle throughout my life trying to find a way to marry money and meaning, right? So, you know, I may have a little less meaning for my day job, uh, but I have lots of money, but that money then powers other stuff that has meaning and makes less money, right? And so the, the tapestry, the composite of them all, that portfolio pursuits then, you know, as, as they come together, give me, fill both buckets, right? So it's the idea of trying to marry both buckets. Uh, because I find that people who are only chasing after money and are low in the meaning category. Um, they're a little empty, and those that only chase after meaning and don't really understand how to utilize or make money, uh, they have unnecessary struggles that even kind of uh, detract from from some of their meaning, right? Yep. So I think the idea of trying to marry the two—it's a very difficult thing, but it's it's worth thinking about and trying to make part of your,
0: you know, your your, your strategy. But uh, yeah but I, but I like, I like the idea of making meaning primary, right? Yes. Like that's the, that's the thing we seek is, you know, how meaningful is my life? Not how much money am I making? And then, which goes back to your definition of success, but you know, I, I, I like that idea. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. Then, and, and then you say, let desire be your driver. Yeah. So, say more about
1: that. Yeah. I mean, that goes right on, on, you know, it just kind of dovetails with the soul on fire thing. Right. It's like that desire. Right. And in that chapter I read about a friend of mine who was, a business partner still a dear friend and um he was my original partner in the online lending firm and uh, then we we bought a gym together we ran that we kind of had the shopping center where we had our our online lending office right next to this gym we owned right so i mean i'd be like at the gym doing leg press with somebody from my online lending business coming over and help me and give me a file to like underwrite while i'm doing leg press you know it was like this cool synergy right and um but he was in the mortgage business years before and um you know, made a mistake and ended up having to go to prison for a little under a year, federal prison for the mistake he made. And uh, that caused some tumult and the the businesses we owned and some rearrangement. While he was in prison, man, like he was still so on fire, like desire was his driver. Like he was in there writing business plans in prisons, prison. You know, he met one of the only kind of white collar guys in the prison camp. They came up with ideas. He got out of prison with no credit, no assets, felony on his record. Right. And then ended up, you know, working as a, a desk clerk at a hotel at first, just because that's the only job that could get him. But then he ended up finding a way to convince somebody to, to go into another partnership with him for another online lending business. And then he also be, got into the behavioral health space and the behavioral health clinic ended up like growing that business multiples and getting equity and selling it for a multimillion dollar exit, you know, got remarried, bought another gym, did all this stuff with no credit, a felony on his record, and came out had nothing when he came out of prison. But it all hatched from like this soul on fire. Desire was his driver, right? So it's like this idea that like, desire can overpower so many disadvantages. You know, mm-hmm. there's, it's like the third door concept that Alex Benayan writes about. Like, you know, there's the first door where the privileged just walk right in, right, because they got connections. And then there's the, the the second door where you you know the 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 great unwashed waits in line trying to get in, and they have to wait their turn and go through all the normal hoops. And then there's the third door where, you know, the renegade finds a way to go bang on the window, run down the alley, kick down this door, you know, and find a way in, right? And like it's that third door mentality coupled with desire and the soul on fire that helps you find a fucking way where it seems like there ain't no way, you know?
0: That's what I hadn't heard that before. Yeah, the different doors. Yeah, that that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, well, and well, that just brings up that reminds me of that story that you know that horrific situation you were faced with when your business partner went to prison, right? And you've got a, yeah. you've got the gym, and you've got your online business, yeah. and you've got a you've you've got a you've got this difficult choice to make. Yeah. Just talk us through that scenario. I thought that was quite a powerful one.
1: Yeah. That was one of the diff- most difficult periods of my life. Right. And we bought this gym and then, um, you know, we, we kind of made some mistakes in the due diligence and in, in terms of sizing up the expenses. So it was underwater a little bit, but we hired a consultant and we had a good like 18 month mm. plan that we started tr- starting to track well to get it kind of in the black. But at the same time, then like we had some, some, some dips in the online lending business and that kind of fun- funded the, the gym and, he went away and then I'm running them both and that became too much. And so I had to close the gym down, even though it was on the right track. Uh, and that was difficult just in terms of how it had to happen. Um, and, uh, you know, and then while he was in prison, I was sending him money to his family. And then, then that was not possible at one point. I had to go, like, you know, meet with his parents and explain to them why I couldn't do that anymore. All this stuff like it was just very, very difficult time. Um, but in the end, like right, we still had this like this friendship that even through some of that stuff, like we still endured, like we we still like really great friends now and hang out, you know, and again, meaning over money. Like all the money stuff didn't matter. What mattered was this meaning, this relationship we mm-hmm. had built. Two people going hand in hand into caverns of risk to kind of try to find nuggets nuggets of gold, you know what I mean? And like there's something about that entrepreneurial, like um, uh, you know, partnerships w- 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 with people with the right mindset where Those could be just as valuable as any of the external rewards that might happen from an entrepreneur
0: adventure, right? It's just just the the relationships of form. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty powerful. And it and um and you 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 describe this moment where you your your voicemail is just filling up with angry messages (laughs) from like investors and gym members and
1: right, right, yeah, So like the people in the gym it's like there was really no good way to to shut it down. Uh, no way where you weren't going to piss off people. It's like the tragic moral choice concept, like try to find a way uh, where like there's, there, there's no good decision, just a, a, you know, a less bad decision, you know, a less bad path. And that's what this was. And, you know, people were really, really pissed off and people would kill me and this and that, because it was like, you know, I had to lay off people, fire people or whatever, close it down. And it was somewhat abrupt. There was really no way to kind of phase it out uh, because of some of the circumstances and, yeah, I mean, I just felt that to my core, like I hated being the bad guy, but I had to be the bad guy. I didn't have much choice, you know, and I had to get over that. Sometimes you just got to get over that with peace. Right. You know, and, and for me, for me, that weekend, you know, might have been a little too much bourbon and whatnot just to try to get through it. But, uh, you know, eventually did. And that's kind of one of the things, man. There's some things where, you know, you're going to be the bad guy, whether you like it or not, because circumstances force a, a hard decision uh, that you wish you didn't have to make. and. um you know, some things are just not clean and you got to find a way to be at peace with that and just try to, uh, minimize, uh, you know, minimize any negative effect on others in certain decisions. You know, it's just like a CEO has to invoke a reduction of force. Like I don't want to do that. Sometimes you have to, you know, and it's like those type of decisions in business as a leader or as an entrepreneur, like, you know, you kind of have to have a certain kind of mindset to be able to endure that and digest that.
0: Yeah. And obviously you joke about being the, you know, the bourbon, but is there anything else you're relying on there to get, to get you through that? Right. And to not kind of spiral and, and, and lose it completely.
1: Again, it's like the spiritual stuff, you know, it's like the the non-attachment relationship with God, couple of that with some good bourbon some good cigars, <laughs> good friends, man, I'll get through it, you know, and just philosophical, you know, girding, right. Just like, relying on the things I've learned, you know, a lot of things I document in the book or things that I've learned from virtual mentors, like knowledge is power. You know, that's such a cliche damn thing to say, but it's true, right? Like if you're a reader, if you're a thinker, if you're someone who reflects, if you're someone who integrates deeper ideas into your life, uh,
0: practically, then you can practically get through a lot of hard times. Yeah. Yeah. And and what's the title of your, the the fifth rule, right? you You are not your failures. yeah yeah Yeah. Yeah. so yeah i suppose that touches on you know identity and who you are and i know we've already touched on it but yeah could you could you expand on that idea you are not your failure
1: yeah i think it goes back to just like you know not attaching yourself to the to, to, to to optics to the potential impressions you make on others like you know know who you are and know that you know a failure is just an event it's not you you know it's part of your story it's something you can learn from. It happened. It might be difficult, but it's not you. Don't over-identify with your successes. Don't over-identify with your pursuits. Don't over-identify with your failure events. You were not your failures. You were something wholly distinct. You know, you un- uniquely knitted in your mother's womb. You are, you are a unique one of one. You know what I mean? Like you are a limited edition. And uh, you transcend many of these events in your life, right? Doesn't mean that you don't have to deal with them. You can, you know, you still have to deal with the consequences of failure, especially ethical failures. You know, I go through examples of the book of of Elgin James, who was a former gang leader uh, and uh, a straight edge hardcore punk gang uh, in New England. Uh, he's actually the half brother of Jopil Willink. And uh, oh, really? You know, I really, I didn't yeah, know yeah. punk punk
0: Gangs existed. Okay, I knew punk bands existed, but punk oh, yeah, This
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. gang FSU, which stood for Friend Stand United, or fuck shit up, depending on on uh, who you talk to, right? But yeah, he got arrested on an extortion charge, and um, but at the same time, he kind of redeemed himself and moved away from violence. And on the day of his sentencing, it was like this juxtaposition because that was the day he got a deal with Universal Pictures, uh, because he began going after his calling journey of screenwriting as he turned away from violence became a mentee of Robert Redford. You know, Robert Redford wrote a letter to the judge and it was like this, he talked about like how that day really represented like uh, the pain and sins of his past and the redemption of his future. Like he was able to turn away from the optics of his failure of, of being like, kind of like a leader of a violent criminal gang. And uh, he was able to write resketch his life and have it come up with this new identity because he was not his failures. He learned that, he knew that, right? But he still took responsibility, right? He still served his time. Went on to become the uh, the writer for uh, uh, Mayan's MC, the spinoff show The Sons of Anarchy on FX, and done a lot of other great things. And you know, um, so like that's one of the examples. Like you still have to deal with the consequences of failures, whether they're ethical or whether entrepreneurial. Like you declare bankruptcy, you gotta deal with that shit, right? I mean, or, like financial things happen, you gotta deal with it. But that doesn't mean that's who you are. You have the power, the ability to reinvent constantly. Like make reinvention your utmost skill. That's another chapter in the book.
0: Yeah. And well, that, that goes back to your idea of like we're we're a we're a soul inhabiting a body or something like that. Like, that, that That's that, right. If you've got that as your sort of framework, your philosophical, yeah. then 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 the idea of reinvention becomes easier, right? It's not like exactly I'm tied right. to this vessel with this history, you know, with these That's skills right. or whatever. Exactly right. Exactly one hundred percent right. Right. Yeah. No. I. Uh, yeah. I. I can. I can see that. Um. Wow. This has been. Uh, you know. An absolutely, um, you know, fan- fantastic, uh, <laughs> you know, enlightening experience. Um, you know, is there, is there anything here we haven't touched on? I really feel like I've got a good, a good sense of your ph- philosophy and and what, and yeah. you, you know, the main thesis of the book. Is is there a story that sort of that really touched you that we've we've not shared, or is there something you know you'd like you'd like to, to talk about that we haven't touched? on?
1: yeah i don't know i mean i think when you end on failure rule number five you are not your failures like that's the last one for a reason i mean that really is kind of like the capstone you know what i mean like that is the the key takeaway i mean the 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 book ended failure rules failure rule number one failure purifies that's kind of the catalyst to go through the process become that next best self through the through, through the trials of a failure and then the end result is in order to do that, you have to detach yourself from the negative optics of failure. You have to realize that you are not your failures. Then you can reinvent. Then you have this empty canvas. You know what I mean? And I just like I to me. I think that's that. That's the overarching uh, lesson of the book, uh, or overarching message of the book. Um, but in terms of any particular story in the book, um, nothing specific comes to mind. I mean, it's 480 pages worth of I think chock full great stuff um you know i even know it's long a lot of people tell me it's like a like a you know an engaging read and they and they burn through it so uh oh yeah
0: it is yeah. it really is it's like every 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 page is a new story it's it, it yes. really is uh it's wonderful um good all right well um yeah thank you once again you know this has been fantastic
1: yeah thanks for great questions and 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 you know reading through it man and thanks for like you know thought you put into the uh interview for
0: sure. And in terms of where next for you, you know, creative. What, what, where, where, what's your calling journey taking you to next?
1: Yeah, so like I said, still uh, grinding away at my day job and in the fintech space, enjoying that. And, and then just really, um, I had a multi-year plan to try to get this message out for fairy rules in the book, right? So like, you know, sales are doing well and consistently growing um been on like i don't know 40 or 50 podcast media experiences i'm going to keep doing that until that's exhausted and then sometime next year i'm probably gonna start my own podcast so i'm building up my network and, and my list of people that i want to have on and that kind of thing uh and doing some events i'm going to the it's events in the cigar space and the music space going to the this is hardcore fest this year in philly which is an annual hardcore fest gonna have a booth there some books and merch and uh, just trying to build up the audience and um find ways to get this message out as much as possible. I've got the YouTube channel at Andrew Thorpe King. Follow me on Instagram at Andrew Thorpe King. No E on the end of Thorpe. And you can order the book anywhere they're found online, anywhere where you buy books online. Get me at andrewthorpeking.com. No end of the uh, no E on the end of P or er, Thorpe. <laughs> and um, you can get merch there. There's a soundtrack for the book playlist on um, Spotify oh, and Apple Music. that oh, out. You I'm,
0: I've never been into like you know the heavy yeah. But, you know now i'm really like okay i want to check some of these songs out i mean the lyrics are great i mean this is one of my yes. revelations in the book i didn't know these like metal pads could write such good lyrics because you know that's it, right yeah yeah but it's uh it's, it's interesting uh, you say that because
1: a lot of people are like man i didn't know that they had such deep thoughtful reflective lyrics and all that crazy music i'm like yeah it's not just you know it's yeah not a lot just-
0: of it's really profound because he because because somebody for whatever reason i've just never resonated i have just the, just the sort of the the sound is just yes. whatever, right? So I've just sort of yeah, bounced right. off it. But yeah, to 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 read the lyrics in the book, I was like, wow, you know, this, there's something yeah. to explore here. Yeah,
1: that's cool. That's cool. See, I'm I'm being an evangelist for uh, the value of uh, hardcore punk poetry as well. Look at that.
0: <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's interesting because I've been to a few poetry nights and seen some poets. So, so that's interesting, actually. Some punk poets that I've really been into. Some you know punk. Po- you've yeah. yeah, read some. Got some big poetry scene here in the UK. Like nice yeah. spoken word scene. So yeah. Yeah, but that makes sense actually. Yeah, a lot of the punk poets were the most yeah, impactful. Yeah. Great. Um, awesome. And then you got and then you got the soul on fire merch. Yeah. Um, that's right. So yep. we'll, put, we'll the put the links right to that website. as well. Yeah,
1: soul on fire supply company. Yeah.
0: yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Okay. Well, this has been fantastic, Andrew. Uh really enjoyed it. Um Fantastic. Great message here. And a great message, I think, for people who have the reality of a day job, but like yes. have this sense they could be doing something more Well, you kind of lay out, right? A, yeah. You know, yeah. A, a this, is,
1: this, isn't this isn't like, oh, you can go live your dream. It's all going to happen. You can quit your job to you be a millionaire. That's how this shit is. This is real deal grit. How do you find meaning? Marry it with money amidst the challenges and the complexities of potentially having a day job. How do you do all that? And still go after it, and 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 you know maximize your uh, usefulness and meaning in the world.
0: You know? Yeah, and, and you you hear a lot of people resist that. Will be like, yeah, but how will I find the time? I've got this, and I've got that, and they, they come at it from like a like a time management question. Yeah. It's not. It's like yeah. you know, what's your like, what's your yeah. You're That's the place to start, not like, where do I find the time, right? It's, it's That's right. Yeah, find the why, right? and then
1: find the fire, and then get after it, you know, and yeah. find a way to uh, to um, make it happen amidst yeah. the,
0: this and the everyday
1: responsibilities. Yeah, yeah.
0: Awesome. All right. Thanks once again, Andrew. Can't wait to get this out there. We'll get the, yeah. The rules of
1: five rules of failures for entrepreneurs, creatives, and authentics.
0: Go buy it. Go buy it. Absolutely go. Bye. All right. Thanks again. Richard. Cheers. Pleasure. Thank you. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.